Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Thanks for stopping by. Siren, Cyclops, Ulysses, Penelope, Calypso, Poseidon, Athena, Ithaca, Xenos. These are all characters and elements that make up one of the oldest and greatest stories still being told, Homer's The Odyssey. Written about 800 years before Christ, but about a legend that is thought to have taken place around 400 years before then even, this epic tale, even to those who have never heard it, exists at the back of nearly all of our collective minds via direct and indirect reverberations throughout our history and culture. So to help us get an introduction to the Odyssey, in addition to digging a little deeper at some of its complex beauty, is educator Derek Luptak. On a fairly regular basis, Mr. Luptak teaches the epic poem to middle schoolers out in the deserts of Arizona, and so is perfect for us gathered around the woodpile today. I'll start by reading some of the first few lines of the poem, and then Mr. Luptak will explain how his own life got tangled in the wanderings of Ulysses. Speak memory of the cunning hero, the wanderer, blown off course time and again after he plundered Troy's sacred heights. Speak of all the cities he saw, the mines he grasped, the suffering deep in his heart at sea as he struggled to survive and bring his men home, but could not save them hard as he tried, the fools destroyed by their own recklessness, when they ate of the oxen of Hyperon the sun, and that god snuffed out their day of return. Of these things, speak, immortal one, and tell the tale once more in our time. This story is kind of what launched me into teaching uh, because I was just kind of a teacher's aide about three years ago and we had a teacher who had something else come up. She was teaching sixth and seventh grade. She had to step down and they didn't have anybody to take her place right away. So as the teacher's aide in the classroom, I just kind of stepped up and took over the daily responsibilities. And as I did that, you know, I'm looking for things that would engage with the students and uh, go through the the curriculum that we had and I was I was nervous because I had never been in front of 30 middle schoolers uh, with trying to get them to pay attention to me and listen and uh, you know get get the information they need and it was really kind of lucky because we were going into a unit on ancient Greece and we first we went through just kind of how it got set up and how, you know, all the, the city states and just the politics, the philosophy, all that kind of stuff. And then we got to the Odyssey and that was probably about two weeks into this new job that I had. And, you know, I had some success keeping their attention and, uh, you know, keeping the classroom running and, you know, just trying to fly by the seat of my pants basically. And once we got to the Odyssey, and it was really, I mean, it was a really um, simplified version that was probably about 12 pages long. Okay. It was just basically meant to be reading comprehension. They were just supposed to read it and answer questions, show that they understood it. But while I was reading it with them, 
I realized, I mean, you know, I know this story and I've read this story when I was, uh, when I was in the ministry, uh, I read this great book by, uh, I have it right here. It's by Lewis Marcos called from Achilles to Christ. And it's basically, it's, it says why Christians should read the pagan classics. And when I was in ministry and, you know, I was reading a lot of C.S. Lewis and stuff and, uh, he, he references pagan classics all the time, the Greek classics, the Roman classics. Uh, and I just loved getting into that world. So, you know, sometimes I would go on a trip in ministry and I'd be reading the Iliad or the Odyssey and uh, just really floored by how the storytelling um, and just how just how well crafted the stories were and the, how well characterized the characters, how human the characters were. Uh, I think before I started reading uh, these classics, I just kind of had in my head that these were archetypes. They were, they were myths. They were probably pretty stiff. They probably were very moralistic, or, you know, just kind of dull. But as I got into them and I had a, found some really good translations um, I just realized that these were stories of really the highest caliber. You've got the Iliad, which is just probably the greatest war story ever told. It just goes into so many, so many layers, so many depths of what um, war is all about. And then what kind of universe this war is happening in where all these horrors are taking place. And then, you know, thank, I mean, thank God we started on the Odyssey with, with the middle schoolers because uh, that would have been pretty pretty dark but we started with the odyssey and as i'm teaching it all these things that i'm remembering about it i just start throwing it out there and you know kind of went off script a little bit and kind of went into the weeds but they were asking questions and they're just like wait what that's it that's in the odyssey <laughs> and i would just start telling the story as i remembered it and i would kind of go along with the sheets they had but like you know add in the stuff I remember that was a little bit more PG-13, mm -hmm. that really kept their attention. <laughs> and I, all the rated R stuff, I just cut out right, right. you know, right away. But uh, the PG-13 kind of st stuff stayed in. And that was kind of when I realized, hey, I think I can teach. I think I can be a teacher because they're asking questions. And the things we're, the, the kind of questions they're asking are big philosophical questions that this story is bringing up and probably what it, what it's meant to do. And while I was doing it, I just, I, I just kind of got a sense of this is, this is really what I want to do. I want to, I want to teach these things and I want to present them uh, at a young age where this will be a part of their, you know, uh, mental blueprint going forward, just to have these images and these stories somewhere in the background. So that when they come into them again, probably in high school or maybe even college, I don't know. Uh, that that'll already be set up and they can maybe uh, have a, an even deeper love of these stories. folks who either haven't read the odyssey or they have but maybe they've forgotten it can you give us like an outline of the plot oh yeah sure the thing about the odyssey is people remember all of the monsters and all of the uh near escapes and all all these adventurous things that happen where odysseus you know 
has to contend with the huge cyclops and he has to uh worry about this whirlpool and then this tentacle creature that he has to go in between and just all these different things the lotus eaters they all come from the odyssey but uh they'd be surprised to know that those are only about four maybe five chapters i don't know maybe six uh in the middle of the story and then the rest is a totally different story so what really happens at the beginning is it doesn't start off with odysseus at all at this point odysseus has been gone from Ithaca. Odysseus is the true rightful king of Ithaca. He's been gone for about 20 years because if you remember the Trojan War lasted about 10 years and from what we are getting we are starting in the middle of the story so uh, it's already taken Odysseus about 10 years to get home and his family doesn't know if he's alive or not. Uh, His son really and he's about 20 years old which means he's never met his father. It's basically setting the stakes so at the very beginning all we see we just hear that odysseus is being held captive for want of a better term on calypso's island calypso is a sea nymph who is immortal uh and we don't really get a whole lot of information right there we just know that he's stuck somewhere he's captive uh he's looking out at the sea he's wanting to go home but he's unable to and then it cuts to ithaca and uh Odysseus left Ithaca 20 years ago. He's been gone these 20 years, and it seems like things have been gradually falling apart in his absence because he's the rightful king. He's the one that's supposed to bring the right order to things there, and he's gone. And not only he's gone, but but all of the men of Ithaca who are of a fighting age went with him. So now we have uh, pretty much a whole generation of men or boys that have grown up without fathers. And we see what that does to the social fiber of Ithaca. Basically, they're just running wild. They're just, they have no sense of a moral compass. They have no sense of the right order of things. They have no sense of Xenos, which is a huge deal uh, with that that culture of being hospitable and being, uh, if the other, if somebody other comes to uh, the palace or to your home, you're you're to show hospitality no matter who they are, and that's a you know that's an ancient law that's very important to to a good, just civilization. But what happens is uh, the two that are left behind are Odysseus's wife Penelope, and Odysseus's probably then infant son Telemachus. And at this point, Telemachus, he's 20 years old. He's never met his father. Um, He doesn't really know what's happened to his father. And we just see kind of this malaise happening in the palace of Odysseus. They are, they're not sure what to expect. They're not sure if if, uh, Odysseus is ever coming home. And to make matters worse, there have all of these sons without fathers have kind of infiltrated the castle under the pretense of saying that they're suitors to the queen because they they want Penelope to just admit that uh, Odysseus hasn't come home yet so he must be dead so they are there just they're claiming Xenos they're claiming hospitality uh, and they're basically eating and drinking and feasting and partying and really just all of the stories Wars that that, um, the palace has, they're just kind of uh, parasites. They're just eating and and taking all the food and uh, just eating them out of house and home, basically. 
it starts with Telemachus sitting there watching these suitors, these uh, young men who who don't have any sense of how the right order of things should be, uh, just pretty much tearing up his house and just pretty much leaving nothing for him. And he, he knows this is his inheritance that they're eating up. He's kind of hopeless, just kind of sitting there daydreaming about Odysseus coming home and, and setting things right. But what he doesn't know is the gods are working together. Zeus has decreed that Odysseus is going to make it home. So he sends Athena to kind of uh, light a fire under Telemachus. Because Telemachus is just kind of this untested young man. He doesn't know if he's strong enough to do to do the things he needs to do to stand up to the suitors. Uh, he's just untested. He's at that place in his life where he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know if he's worthy to be the son of Odysseus or uh, to be counted among uh, great warriors. He's just kind of sitting there daydreaming. So, I mean, this is just the first book, and it's, a, it's an awesome scene where Athena – disguises herself i think she disguises herself if i remember correctly as a uh, a shepherd or a swineherd or something uh that just enters the palace and of course it's important to show hospitality to anybody who comes into the palace the suitors don't notice her the suitors don't show her any hospitality they're too busy drinking and eating food that's not theirs and they're not even you know offering that uh telemachus sees her at the gate and he runs to offer her hospitality because what they have to show at the beginning of the story is that Telemachus is keeping the old ways alive. And that's really important because if he becomes one, you know, one of the suitors or like the suitors, then pretty much all is lost. Because if Odysseus comes home and his son has already been corrupted, that's not going to be the ending that uh, we're hoping for. And there's going to be some serious trouble in Ithaca. So, you know, she... Basically, uh, Athena tells him all of this stuff and, and tells him that he needs to really just stop sitting around, stop hoping something's going to happen. He needs to make things, something happen. He needs to get a crew together and go out sailing and go to King Nestor, go to King Minolos, both of those who have come back from the Trojan War already, and ask for news of Odysseus so that if he hears news, he knows that he can come back here and challenge the suitors and wait for his dad to come home. But if he hears news that Odysseus is dead, he can also, you know, come back, have a funeral, uh, put these things to rest, and then move on with his life and help his mother get remarried. And they've just been in uh, this place of no movement for so long that uh, Athena is just saying, you need to go out. You need to have yourself tested as, as the son of Odysseus. And this really amazing thing happens is she uh, gives him this courage that he didn't have before. And it's almost like he becomes a new person after talking to her. Hmm. So he does, he puts all this together and just, I'm, I'm, I'll try to make the next part really short, but he goes and he starts uh, challenging the suitors and he says, he's going to go away and ask about Odysseus and they don't want him to go. Um, and what's really interesting while he's kind of arguing with the suitors about this, they're calling him names and slanderous stuff and just horrible things. They see uh, a bird and I forget exactly what happens, but one bird in the air, I think it's a hawk, uh, totally just uh, fights with another bird and just rips the other bird to shreds. And this is taken as an omen. Uh, one of the older, wiser people there says this is an omen that uh, Odysseus is on his way home and he is going to tear into his enemies this way. 
And one of the main suitors says, old man, you're crazy. Birds kill each other all the time. There's no meaning in that. So what's interesting to me is, and and really what I try to uh, impress upon the middle schoolers is already in this poem, we've got these two worldviews. We've got the worldviews of the suitors, which is just life is meaningless. uh, Only the strong survive. Get what you can while you can. Uh, no matter who you have to go over to get to it. Uh, and then you've got the the other point of view, which is more noble, presented as more noble, where, no, there is meaning to things. And even though things right now look like there there's no meaning to it, there is an ultimate meaning that's coming that has been prophesied. And uh, Odysseus is going to come home and set things right. To me, that's, that's where I like to start with the, the middle schoolers and just kind of introduce them to that concept of is there a meaning to things or not which one of these two sides are right and they're both kind of living out the end of their philosophies you know you've got uh just eat drink for tomorrow we die on the suitor's side and you've got a quest uh to find uh the lost odysseus the quest to find the father the quest to find uh who he really is on the other side so to me that that always gets some great discussion going with middle schoolers because they're thinking about that stuff too. They just need words to put it in. Okay. So uh, let's, pretend that i am your son okay and you live out in new mexico correct i'm in uh, arizona my bad sorry so <laughs> again i'm your son we're taking a walk out in the desert and you decide to tell your favorite episode from mm-hmm. the, the odyssey can you I'm, I'm sitting at your feet my favorite episode oh man there's so many my favorite though i mean this is this is going to be spoiler alert territory mm-hmm. because we're going to go to the end of the story after Telemachus goes and he, he visits his father's old friends, uh, he is told that Odysseus is alive. He's just captured by Calypso, but they've heard things that he's coming back. So Telemachus goes back to Ithaca, but the suitors are kind of putting a, uh, um, a trap, setting a trap for him on the way back. And then that, that, that just leaves it as a cliffhanger. Then it goes over to Odysseus' story. He is being held by Calypso. Uh, she's basically keeping him there, but she's offering herself as his wife. She's saying, Hey, I can make you immortal like me. You could just live in pleasure here for the rest of your life. And I'm more beautiful than Penelope anyway. I'm an immortal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we get the sense that he's trying to get himself out of a really dangerous situation because he doesn't want to get her upset. But he basically just says, okay, yeah, you're right. But I, I, and these things are, you know, Penelope could never compete with your beauty, but, she's my wife that's my home i long for my home even though i only have a short life ahead of me even though i could die the way there um i I long for my home and if i'm if i'm talking to my son i'm saying you know even thousands and thousands of years ago the concept of home where i belong the people that whose lives i can come in contact and influence is one of the most important things even in ancient literature we tend to think of our home life as tedious, boring, uh, having all kinds of chores to do, 
um, just, you know, do we, what are we going to make for dinner tonight? You know, just all the, all the mundane things. But what I love about the Odyssey is that all of this crazy stuff that happens while, while Odysseus is trying to get home to him, that's just, that's the small stuff. Mm-hmm. The big stuff is getting back home where he belongs, where he can be an influence on his child, where they can grow together, where they can love together. That's the main thing and the, uh, the, the main thing that he is going after. So when, once he finally gets through all these adventures, he washes up on Ithaca's shore. And at first he doesn't know it's Ithaca because it's, uh, it's pretty foggy. And I think Athena comes to him in disguise and after a while tells him it's Ithaca. Uh, so he goes and he's, he's going to have to test everybody. He's been gone 20 years. He has to test and see who's, lo- who's still loyal to King Odysseus and who is uh, plotting to overthrow Odysseus's house and take Penelope and all these kind of stuff. He needs to go and see, get, take an inventory in disguise uh, who's who. But there's this wonderful moment where he's in this kind of the shed, the swineherd shed, who Eumaeus uh, is the swineherder, who he's already talked about Odysseus as the great king, the rightful king. He knows he's loyal to him. And while he's in there, and he's under disguise, nobody recognizes him as Odysseus. He's just an old, he looks like an old beggar. But th- just then his son comes in. His son Telemachus, isn't, this is the first time they've ever seen each other, but Telemachus doesn't know it's his father. He just thinks it's a, you know, a, a vagrant. And uh, Odysseus is trying to keep his emotions kind of in check, but he's seeing his son for the first time. And he's also seeing in the way that Telemachus treats the swineherd, who's one of the least of these in the kingdom. Uh, he's seeing that he's grown up to be a worthy son, a worthy person to one day be king and bring back order to Ithaca that all is not lost. He, I think one of his main fears would be that he would come home and his son would just be the, the exact opposite of who Odysseus would be. And uh, so that's, that's something that's very important, a very important moment, even though it's just presented as a small moment between two people, but eventually, and this is my favorite part, eventually um, his disguise is lifted by Athena and he kind of has that, you know, Telemachus, I am your father moment. <laughs> Instead of like just having this uh, moment where they just stare at each other and, you know, they, they just they start bawling. They start weeping. They start falling on each other's shoulder. I mean, this I don't know how this would play in a movie, but I mean, they're just wrecked. It never says exactly why they cry, but there's this great simile. And, and Homer is the master of just bringing in a simile, which explains the whole situation. And his simile for this is that they wept like a couple of predator birds who had come back to their nest only to find that a farmer had stolen their young. And so what, what that says is they're both, they're both men, they're both warriors, but these tears are the tears that, that they're helpless to bring back the years that were stolen from them. And they don't, you know, Telemachus didn't have a dad for 20 years and he didn't get to be with his son for 20 years. And now, and that's why they're weeping. And to me, that's such a, I mean, it could have been so much easier in an epic poem like this, just to say, just to go forward and then just start slaughtering people, you know, but there's just so many of these moments that are just real human moments that just make the characters just come alive. 
in ways that I never expected. And there's just so many of these, but to me, that's the one that always stands out. If I'm, if I'm going to say my favorite part, uh, that is just such a, one of the greatest, I'd say one of the greatest moments and, uh, in classic literature, hands down for me anyway. We can't help but to read these old tales through modern eyes mm-hmm. and it goes through our modern brains and last year I re-listened to the whole Iliad and the Odyssey back to back and mm-hmm. one thing that kind of stood out to me and I'm sure your students have a lot to say about this as well maybe yeah. is Ulysses even though he's trying to get home it seems like he's really taking his time and yeah uh, and this is considering that he shacks up with um Calypso mm-hmm. and Circe uh, for about a year. So mm-hmm. what is your take on this? Why would he hang out with this woman who's not his wife for mm-hmm. about a year? Right. So um, first of all, he, he starts off with a lot of men, a big crew, and they're heading away from Troy. They're victorious. The whole uh, Trojan horse thing worked out pretty good. And uh, of course, that was his idea because he's a very uh, conniving uh, tactician. And he's going home and he hits first, first of all, he hits a, a island called Ismaris and they just do a little plundering in Ismaris and they take some people and, you know, burn the, burn it all down and just, just normal stuff that you do, you know, uh, when you're on your way back from the, the Trojan war, which kind of shows that they're still in war mode. I don't know the way I interpret the story that he tells and what's really fascinating about the story he tells the Phaeacians, because this is where all, all of this narrative of him traveling comes from is him telling a story and he's telling a story to the Phaeacians who basically they're kind of a utopian society in this beautiful lush island in which the gods come down undisguised and there's just, they're just like the perfect civilization and they're very hospitable to Odysseus they don't know who he is and they start telling the story of Odysseus and the they, they have him for a feast and one of the minstrels starts singing about the um, wooden horse the Trojan horse and Odysseus starts weeping because he realizes that the, the story has has preceded him because he's been so busy with all these crazy adventures now here's the thing and this is what makes us just as another level to this story. There's a part of me that questions how much of what he tells the Phaeacians is an invention and how much of it is actually true because he's a very, he's a, he, he knows what to tell people uh, to get them on his side. And so I wonder how much of that is fabricated to make himself look good and to get them to sympathize with him because of all the hardships he's been through. Because he, he doesn't have any men. And usually when, when when a captain shows up without any men, you would say, okay, well, you haven't you have been a very good captain. You haven't kept your men very safe. But what he's doing is he, he's telling a story about how all the things he went through, hardship after hardship, uh, he was lucky to escape with his life. And um, there's a few different ways to read it. One is that he's just making it all up. Maybe none of that happened. I don't like that. I don't like that 
way of looking at it. I don't look at it that way, but I just like that extra layer there. Right. I, I think he's telling the truth. I think all this stuff happened. But I also think that, you know, it's been read uh, by the church fathers and by uh, by philosophers trying to kind of platonize it as archetypes um, of things that would happen to somebody who is coming back from war and things he would have to go through to really come home again. In that way, that could that could be a that could be a symbol. I mean, first you start. It shows him going to this island and sacking a city and stealing women and children and turning them into slaves. And you're just like, wow, this is the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like he just can't stop being, you know, a man of war. He can't stop. He can't stop battling. He can't stop being a soldier. And it's almost like the the things he goes through, which first starts with the lotus eaters and that temptation to just forget everything, forget what just happened, all the horrors that he just saw, forget the home that's waiting for him, just deny that he was involved in something so horrific. And the lotus eaters, they're eating this, uh, this plant that just kind of drugs them into forgetfulness. And I could see that being maybe the first stage of leaving a war zone and coming back into society. Are we going to deny it? Are we going to um, pretend it didn't happen? Can we live in that uh, forgetfulness? But every time he comes up against something like that, it, it, it offers him something, but it also takes something from him. It also takes himself from him. So he gets away from the lotus eaters and he goes, he ends up on the island of the Cyclops and that's probably one of the best best chapters in the entire saga. I mean, it's just amazing how he the the interplay that he has with this really horrible Cyclops named Polyphemus, who is the son of uh, Poseidon. So he's got some clout, and this is this is the reason why it takes Odysseus so long to get home is because he pisses off Poseidon mm-hmm. by what he does to his son. But Polyphemus is uh, basically a cyclops who lives in a cave, who's a shepherd, who has these huge sheep that he, he shepherds. And so they sneak into his, uh, his cave and they start eating his food because they're, they're assuming Xenos. They're assuming hospitality. But this is showing uh, what happens when you don't have a good civilization because these cyclops who live on this island are the opposite of a good civilization. They're not civilized at all. And that's another theme of uh, the Odyssey is what does it mean to be a civilized person in an uncivilized place? So they uh, eventually the uh, Cyclops comes home and he eats a couple of his men. He drinks some goat's milk and he falls asleep. And, you know, Odysseus wants to just stab him in the heart right there. But then he realizes, oh, if I kill him, we're, we're trapped in here forever. Mm-hmm. He just rolled this huge boulder across the the front of his his uh cave here we're trapped we're at his mercy so they let him sleep and he gets up and he goes out again and and they're trying to figure out a plan to get rid of him and and basically escape because he keeps shutting the door when he leaves so they're trapped in there next time he comes in odysseus has this wine that is very potent wine that he was given by athena that's that's uh almost wine for the gods basically and he offers, you know, he's kind of in the shadows. This is kind of like Bilbo in Smaug when Bilbo is, you know, talking uh, while he's uh, invisible and they're having this conversation. 
so he's he's kind of talking to Polyphemus, and he says, "Hey, after you eat two more of my men, uh, would you like to have some of this wine to wash them down with?" And he takes the wine, and it is drugged, and he basically just falls asleep. And, and uh, at this point, they decide that the best course of action is to gouge his eye out. Before this, though, Polyphemus asks Odysseus what his name is, and Odysseus says Nemo, which means nobody. And so there's this kind of funny part where uh, he's, he's getting his eye gouged out, and he's waking up, and he's screaming, and he's yelling to all of his other uh, Cyclops that live ne- next by, nearby and just saying, help me, I'm, my eye is being gouged out by nobody. And they're all like, go to sleep, you're crazy. What do you mean nobody's gouging out your eyes? And go back to sleep. So there's like that moment there that's kind of kind of mm-hmm. funny. And uh, finally, because he's blind, he still has to let the sheep out. And they, the remaining men tie themselves underneath the sheep so he won't be able to feel them coming out. And they escape that way. And of course, Odysseus, he can't just leave well enough alone. While they're sailing away, uh, they look up. Polyphemus realizes that he's looking for him, and he realizes they got away. While he's sailing away, he says, oh, by the way, Polyphemus, uh, if you want to know who uh, gouged your eye out, it wasn't nobody. It was Odysseus, king of Ithaca. And this really... I mean, this is where, where, like, in, you know, the movies, you see the Cyclops throwing the boulders into the water, trying to hit the ship. And he calls upon his father, Poseidon, and says, look what, the, look what Odysseus has done to me. So, really, all of the hardships that come after that, it's, it's Poseidon trying to keep him from getting home. And he keeps washing up on these other places, and he washes up on Circe's uh, island, and eventually he ends up on Calypso's island. And Calypso just kind of keeps him there, and Poseidon is just kind of waiting for him to try to get away so he can kill him. And that's pretty much where he's been for 10, I mean, 10 years. And that's kind of brings us back around to the start of the story. It's, it's the way the storytelling, the way it is, it starts at the uh, middle and goes back around. And, you know, it's just, it's just very well done. To, to go and, back to that part yeah. where Ulysses has to reveal his name. Of course, it's a, it's a huge mistake, but if that's not a lesson in pride or right. thinking you have to have the last word or you you got to get credit for something, I don't mm-hmm. know what is. I mean, because that oh, yeah. ends up really cursing him in a big way. Right, and that's the lesson to take from that because he could have got he could have gone straight home yeah. after that with some men alive. But that moment of pride not only eventually will kill all of his men. But he will end up washed up naked on some foreign beach at the mercy of whoever's there. All because he couldn't just, you know, it's basically the textbook definition of pride that goes before a fall. And, and, and it's the reason why he's, it takes him 10 years to get home. So I don't really think he, he's just lollygagging around taking his time. I think he really wants to get home. But he finds himself in these situations that are almost impossible to get out of. And Calypso is is one of those situations. Now he does oh and I try to I, this is one of those things that I do not tell the the middle schoolers because it's 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 a hard it's a hard R. It's not PG thirteen, but <laughs> yeah, he shacks up with Calypso and uh, there are some very uh, very descriptive passages on just how the shacking up happens. Yeah. And it is there, man. The thing about Homer is he is not 
he's not a boring writer and he will give you the gore he will give you the guts falling out of people he will give you people getting their skulls chopped in half and falling apart and the eyeballs coming out and just i mean he is he's that kind of writer and i never knew that going into this i always thought it'd just be like elevated prose mm-hmm. it's almost like the same with the bible you know you, th- you think you know what the bible is going to be until you start reading it and then it's just like whoa this yeah. is not what i expected at all and and so basically he's on the island of calypso the temptation there is that he's being offered a perfect life with what many would think is a perfect wife you know basically she's there offering him all of the the things that would satisfy his every whim give him every pleasure that a man could want when hermes comes to tell her that zeus is basically saying back off and let him go she's doing the chores she's doing the washing she's the the woman who's uh, cleaning the house while he's just kind of lo- lying around and uh, you know, missing his home. But there is a sense where this could be like the ultimate temptation. Do you want the, per- you know, what you would think of as the perfect life, kind of that daydream that guys have sometime that isn't really real because you're going to, you know, she is not like you. She is immortal. She wants to make you immortal. But who knows how that's going to go as a human being who should die uh, being made immortal so his life is like infinitely stretched out and to me this is kind of like his last temptation but he comes out of it with flying colors other than you know all the shacking up that happened <laughs> <laughs> that really there's no there's no good way to to uh, explain that away but you know he, he finally comes to her and he can't anger her because she's so powerful she could probably just if he if he got her mad she could probably just obliterate him on the spot so he, he kind of dances around it and just says you know you are so beautiful and you are beyond anything I could ever wish or hope for. You're definitely more beautiful than Penelope. I bet he didn't tell Penelope that when he was telling her the story, but he says, <laughs> you're definitely more beautiful than Penelope. But the thing is I'm a, I'm mortal and I can't get around that. And I have a home and I have a wife that, that I'm longing and yearning for. And all those things go together for me. And if I'm not there, I'm not Odysseus king of ithaca i'm just some guy in a cave in an island mm-hmm. and I've, I've got a higher calling and I, I have to go home and apparently that does the trick also hermes talking to her does the trick and she lets him go and but i think she was on he was on her island i want to say four or five years so it was really him being kept captive and then after that he he basically the 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 events speed up and he, he ends up back in Ithaca relatively quickly after that. He got us rowing and rowing and rowing the boat. Poseidon does not want to keep us afloat. We got a leader that is giving us hope. Odysseus acting like he is the goat. I don't know. Again, talking about looking through current lenses, I'm going to present to you two different groups, powerful okay. groups. We'll go with the first one. On the cultural left, and there are extremes and different degrees of all this, but like on the far extreme, you have the the group that's like like, hey ho, Western culture's got to go. It's one of their uh, mantras, and and they have been successful uh, getting rid of classical studies on uh, a lot of universities, a lot of universities that are great. You know, the ones people want to go to, they're very prestigious, and 
there is some fair criticisms of some of the themes or things that happen in the book that we would most anybody would find antiquated or sexist. First of all, have you had any students like give you grief about it? And if not, do you have that your answers all ready to go if they bring up some of these things that um, some of the themes or um, scenes that we might find repulsive today or at least uncomfortable? Right, and and to be honest, um, the stuff that I read that's geared at middle schoolers is very <laughs> kind of scrubs some of that out. So I don't really deal with it too much because they kind of they, they kind of uh, whitewash some of that. They you know they'll say that he was with. Uh, Calypso and she was trying to get her him to marry her and you know you find ways to say it and get around it because you know you know how middle schoolers are you don't really want to give them too much ammo to go off <laughs> yeah so I've never I, I, I can honestly say I really haven't had too much pushback on that but they have asked you know things like why is he staying with Calypso so long right. uh, Penelope is like you know she's trying to keep off all these horrible suitors and here he is just kind of hanging out on this island so I tried to explain to him, well, he's actually being captured on the island. You know, he might be getting some pleasure out of it. For the most part, the middle schoolers, the version they get, they, they don't really interact with the really problematic stuff too badly. Uh, so I don't really have any, I, I haven't really had the opportunity to really um, talk about that too much. I do, you know, say that there is a lot of sexism in it because, you know, Penelope is just expected to be this dutiful wife and just wait while, you know, he's just going around the world and the curriculum does portray him as uh, rejecting the advances of Calypso. And it's really hard for me to teach that because I know it's not true. So what I'm saying is they don't, the middle schoolers I teach don't really get a chance to interact with that because for, I guess, for the, the grade level, that stuff just isn't in there. I don't, I don't think they'll really get that until maybe high school. I have thoughts on that. I have thoughts on what, uh, if, if I were to get, uh, that argument. First of all, it's it's a legitimate argument, for sure. I mean, Western culture has done some pretty heinous things around the world, but Western culture has done some amazing, wonderful contributions to the world, also. So it's one of those mixed bag kind of things. No, no culture, no no country, political ideology is blameless. They all have good things to offer, I think, but there's also there's also dark sides to to all these things. You know, I, I wouldn't want to say, okay, well, we have to study Western culture because it's the most important culture ever. It's you know, that's it's the important culture, and all the other cultures we can study those too. But Western culture has to be at the top. I wouldn't say that. I, I definitely want to see all how the the different literatures from different cultures interact and uh, how we can you know have them in conversation. I think that's, that would be a great idea, but oh, just the thought of losing these classics to me, that, that would be a great travesty. These are beautiful stories that actually have a lot in them that you wouldn't expect, uh, that, that actually seem pretty progressive for the time. So if you could read them for the progressive elements and, uh, just, you know, find a way to, you know, get over the prob problematic elements there's it's such a richness there's so so much treasure in these classics so i, I don't know I, I hope that makes a little bit of sense yeah but no that's that's what i would say if anybody were, were to talk to me about it well on the other side political side you might say or cultural side there are some among christians jews muslims 
who kind of questioned the, the wisdom of spending any time on a pagan epic. Right. And so obviously you brought up there's a whole book about mm-hmm. why Christians should, at least Christians at least, should be mm-hmm. reading. But of course, there's been multiple Jews and Muslims and Christians that have championed the Odyssey. But but again, there's some that are fearful of synchronism, I guess you might say, or getting lost in the weeds. Uh, what do you say to that if someone would come to you with that view? Right. And the first thing I want to say is that there's never been a clear consensus that the church at large has agreed upon if you know what to do with these texts. So it's it's been a debate since the beginning of the early church debating things. And there's been two sides that have come out of it. And I would say like this would be something more like Tertullian on one side who would say, I think his famous quote is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Meaning why would we even want to interact with these classical texts and this classical culture when we have Jerusalem, when we have our, our our Old Testament, and I guess at the time the New Testament was being written also. And then there's other sides, which would be, I think I'm thinking of, uh, I want to say Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria uh, was really big, and I think Justin Martyr also, were really big on engaging the classical world apologetically. And I mean, you see Paul doing it when he gets to Mars Hill. He, I believe this is Acts 17, 16 or 17, but he goes to Athens and he goes to Mars Hill and he's looking at all these tombs or monuments. And there's all these monuments, these different gods and everything, these named gods. And uh, then there's a monument to the unknown God. And so what he does, he enters that culture and he pays attention to it. He doesn't just go in and say, oh, this is all just satanic. Right. Get rid of it, burn it down. He says, what can I learn from this? So he goes and he walks around and he sees uh, all of these. And, and, and he says, I can tell that they're very religious people. They're seeking. They're, they're trying to understand what's happening. And instead of going in there and saying, well, you're all going to hell, you know, because you don't know what I'm about to tell you. He, he starts in a different way. He says, you know, I've noticed that you guys are very religious here. And I've noticed that even though you've got all these named gods and you've, you have all these explanations of why certain things happen and all these rituals and all these things, just I just noticed and I couldn't help but see that there's this monument to an unknown god as if there's a god that you guys uh, forgot about or, or haven't come in contact with. I'm here to tell you about that God. And that wasn't in for him. That was a way for him to uh, use what they already knew to connect it with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that made sense to them. I would say re- going going back to the classics of Western civilization or to other civilizations, you can see these questions you can see these echoes you can see these longings and yearnings in these stories you can see in the odyssey the idea that you welcome the outsider and you show them hospitality and that could be taken straight from the new testament the main morality that comes out of the odyssey is something that uh is very biblical as well you're just seeing it in a different context and you know, it's kind of hard for me to see that and not say, well, God must be working in some way in that culture. 
maybe, you know, maybe not to the extent of, uh, you know, what we saw in the old Testament with the, the, the Israelites, but is he just focusing on the Israelites? Is he not doing working with other, uh, nations as well? I, I just have to say when I, when I became a Christian, I'm, I'm probably, it was probably about 22 years ago when I seriously, I mean, I grew up in the church, but about 22 years ago, I really uh, started reading C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, and I was floored just by the the beauty and the wonder of the Christianity that they uh, presented. And, and they presented it because they were in conversation with their culture. They're in conversation with these ancient books that were not only the Bible, but also uh, the great, great works of uh, prior of our civilization. And they were able to put all these together. And the whole reason C.S. Lewis became a Christian was because they were walking down Addison's walk and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, they're talking about mythology. And J.R.R. Tolkien didn't say, we, I, I don't want to talk about mythology. That's, that's satanic. Let's just talk about Jesus right. and say that he said he, he went into Lewis's understanding of mythology because it was a common interest that they were both very knowledgeable on. And uh, he said something to Lewis, which was basically, you know, we know that these mythological motifs of the dying God and the rising God happen all throughout uh, mythology. But what if that's an echo of something that's real? And what if, uh, Christ is the true myth and that hit Lewis like a ton of bricks and I don't think he ever recovered from that and I don't think that would I don't think we would have I mean I'm sure we God would have found another way but that is why uh, we have a C.S. Lewis who was so fierce about his Christianity because it made that moment it made sense to him and it, it was something that he realized that he already loved in, in, in a sense and I think when we as Christians uh, interact with things that people love and that people are drawn to, and you know these things are stories and songs and music and art and all these different parts of the culture uh, that people are drawn to and interact with them, and uh, you know that gives us an end to really show the beauty of what what we believe in and what we're talking about. I, I just see it as part of something bigger God's doing. We can't always say that we know exactly where, where he is, what he's what he's doing. I believe that he's uh, he's beyond our conception. He's always working on something, and we're always kind of discovering it after the fact. So my my reason for reading these books is because they show me that even with their flaws and even with the stuff in it that's that I wouldn't uh, endorse, they show me that humans have been seeking meaning for since prehistory. They've been asking these questions for as far back as we can remember that's something that's inherent in every culture every human and to me that's not an accident there's something to that when i teach i don't my personal beliefs I, they don't know my personal beliefs and i try to make sure they, they they don't but i do try to have them ask these questions about hey who's right are the suitors right is it just basically a meaningless world where you just need to get everything you can and you know the strong survive and the weak don't or is there a deeper meaning to life is there is there such thing as uh destiny these uh books 
get them thinking those thoughts. Among all women, the divine, for you have tamed time and have it singing, caged in the night. Divine among your eras, gods, because although all men are at your feet, you suffer solitude for only one. Words are your great weakness and your principal strength. You're a father of the tale, wherever you are. The bard loses his chair. The plot of the gods loses its legend. You love the question in another's eyes and... Inviting astonishment, poor yourself, as you are, would be, might be, or were. Quite willing to live to tell you, I fathom you, and above all, let's not speak of suffering, to unlive you, myself and anyone opposed, to make a note of a dream. Juana Rosa Pita Back on episode 129, I had on poet and writer... Uh, Juana Rosa Pita, mm-hmm. and she wrote a whole, well, a small book of poetry just about Penelope. Right. And I, I know you've read it. So what were your thoughts on that work? That's what I love about this story is you can you can take a character, like a minor character. Well, no, she's not a minor character. She's a pretty big character. But you can really see just how fully human Homer made her so that you could actually see things from her point of view and have it really – changed the story drastically he kind of leaves her as an ambiguous character but it seems like when you read this book of poetry it's almost like she's the epic hero you know she's the one that's keeping things the way they should be in ithaca while the boys are off on their adventures i think it really makes a strong argument that she is not just the the dutiful wife who keeps the the house running and does the dishes while Odysseus is gone, but that she is engaged in something that takes the exact same amount of courage and bravery and cunning uh, to keep things from basically descending into chaos. So, I, yeah, I love that book. I, I, I love when somebody can look at this story, and this story is so multi-layered, you could take it in so many different directions and still uh, keep it true to the original. I really enjoyed reading it. It really made me want to write Start writing poetry again. How to do, ladies? Name of Pete. Go to sleep, you little baby. Everybody's gone in the cotton and the corn. Didn't leave nobody but the baby. The Odyssey has been adapted many times in various forms. And of course, in the 20th century. And now, you know, film is usually the greatest or at least the most prominent vehicle to do a homage to the classic stories, whether they be right. Shakespeare or you know the myths or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so, what are your thoughts on some of the adaptations? I, I know that we again we've talked off recording that I, I love Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Oh yeah, the, the Coen Brothers movie, which is basically the Odyssey set in the Deep right. South in the 1930s or so. Yeah. Talk about that, and also you had mentioned that. A, a lot of other uh, works of art or stories or movies, they will borrow elements from the Odyssey. So talk about both of those right. things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou uh, is one of my favorite movies by the Coen brothers. It's hilarious. 
so many great lines, so many great quotables. But yeah, watching it the first time through, I was like, I think it hit me right about the time John Goodman uh, comes in and he's, I, I forget what he did, but it was really horrible. And I just realized that guy's like the Cyclops. And then everything just made sense because you had the, the Lotus Eaters and you had the Sirens and you had just all kinds of things that were trying to bring him down while he's, you know, leaving prison. He wasn't leaving war. He was leaving prison and trying to get back home. And it was just flawless. It was just a wonderful uh, reimagining of it. I can't really think of any basically just adaptations of the Odyssey itself other than like a couple of TV movies that really weren't that great. Uh I really can't believe that they haven't made a big budget version of the Odyssey because it would just, it would be amazing if you get the right people to do it. I know they made... um, Clash of the Titans, they remade that. I used to love the 80s version of that. Right. And I think that's where I got, I think that's pretty much where I got all of my Greek uh, mythology imagery was from that movie. And so I was surprised to see that there was no ro- robot owl in the Odyssey <laughs> while I was reading it. That's exactly what I was thinking awesome. about. That's one of my favorite elements from that film. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea where it came from, but, but that was always like a part of Greek mythology for me is, okay, now where's the robot owl? But um, Troy is an interesting movie. I, I did see Troy because it's basically the Iliad. And it has Odysseus in it, played by Sean Bean, who played Boromir in uh, Lord of the Rings. And he just makes a perfect Odysseus. I mean, it's just wasted that they didn't make the Odyssey right after that starring him. But the, the one thing that really bugged me, and if they ever do a, a big budget version of the Odyssey, I really hope they don't go this route. Because what they did was they took all of the gods out of the equation and said, we're just going to present this as a historical battle. And to me, you just if you do that, you just took away about half of what makes the Iliad the Iliad. You take away the idea that these things that are happening on the battlefield, it's kind of like the gods are playing chess against each other, and which adds a whole new level of... Uh, suspense and intrigue and uh, all these gods are trying to trick each other and pull things on each other so that their side can make their, their sides can make advancements and everything and that's oh, that, that's part of what makes the Iliad what it is and to take that away that was just I, I didn't agree with that but the actual visuals and the acting and all that kind of stuff it's, it's such a great movie I, I still enjoy it quite a bit that's all I can think of that's a one to one correlation with an adaptation of Homer. Uh, there may have been other ones that I just I can't think of, but for me mostly it's it's the the movies and books that are can't help but be influenced by the Odyssey, because the Odyssey is the story in Western culture. It's it's really tough um, to find an adventure story or a quest story or something like that that doesn't owe something to the Odyssey. Anytime you've got some kind of world building where, uh, for me, it would be uh, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. I came to The Hobbit way before I came to The Odyssey. But it's the same feeling you get when you are going through this mythical land where anything can happen. Where you are totally off the grid of where normal things take place and you're facing, you know, danger after danger. I don't think there's any one of these uh, works of imagination that doesn't get uh, traced back to the Odyssey in some way. 
If you're still wanting to ponder on things related to the Odyssey, again, that interview with poet Juana Rosapita is on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 129, where in addition to many of her other writings, we talk about her book, Penelope's Journey. Or if you're in a mood for different epics, episodes 183 and 200 has researcher Jim McClanahan talking about what has been dubbed the Chinese Odyssey, the 16th century novel Journey to the West. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.